That text, as you know, while on the one hand is wonderfully elegant in celebrating the power of God and so on, has been highly controversial. And there's been all kinds of battles that have been fought, and I would say it, uh, sometimes figuratively, maybe sometimes literally, bloodshed over just exactly how we are to understand the great announcements that we find here in Genesis chapter 1. Part of the reason there's been such controversy is because way back in about the middle of the 1800s, there was the discovery of what became the most famous pagan creation myth that had ever been found in human history. It dates back to ancient Mesopotamia and a group of people that lived there called the Sumerians, and it was called Enuma Elish, based on the first three words of this myth, which translate as, when on high, Enuma Elish, when on high. And one of the most interesting features of this creation myth was that it, at certain points, seemed to strikingly parallel what we find in the biblical text, and at other times, it seemed, of course, to depart very much from it. And so that caused all kinds of people to come up with all kinds of explanations as to just how in the world we were supposed to understand Genesis 1 in light of now this newly discovered Enuma Elish. And so to help us think about this, I want to do a little bit of quick thinking. But this, uh, as you recognize, is uh, kind of a line drawing of what's called Mesopotamia. We've got two major rivers coming out of it from the Persian Gulf. The right-hand river is the Tigris, the left-hand is the Euphrates, and that defines then a body of real estate that's called Mesopotamia, literally meaning between the rivers, Meso between Potamia, the rivers. If you are familiar with that, you know the Persian Gulf, we've had quite a bit of interest in that region for some years uh, more recently. If you go off to the east, you find Iran, modern-day Iran. By the way, Mesopotamia itself would be Iraq today. You go further east, you get to Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and eventually China. So that's where we are on the map going that direction. Straight up, you'll run into eastern Turkey, from there, you get into the Caucasus Range, east of the Black Sea, and from there into Russia. If you go west, that takes you across the northern tip of the Arabian Peninsula to the, to the Mediterranean. You find Israel, Syria, down to the south, Egypt, up to the north, Turkey, going that way. And then straight south is that vast Arabian Peninsula. So you've all got that in your mind's eye. This, of course, is a map depicting the ancient uh, a region. There were major cities in there. Some of these are mentioned in the Bible, some are not. Sumer is probably the biblical word Shinar, S-H-I-N-A-R, at least many scholars believe so. That's mentioned in Genesis. Uh, Nippur, Isin, Larsa, Ur, Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldees, you know, same place, and so on. Eric, some of those are mentioned in the Bible. But anyway, that's the most primitive and ancient civilization that we have ever found. Uh, and so if we think about, you know, humankind being on planet Earth for many, many thousands of years, that may be the case. I'm not disputing that point right now, but the earliest actual organized, civilized community that has been discovered is here in Mesopotamia, hence it's sometimes called the cradle of civilization. 
Mesopotamia was organized uh, according to several dynasties, and the earliest of these was called Sumer. And Sumer goes in very round numbers from about 3000 BC, maybe earlier, to about 2316, and it was the center of many wonderful innovations. For one thing, the first time we find something like a city-state, where a city is organized with its environment, environs into a kind of independent political unit, seems to go back to Sumer. We sometimes think of city-states in terms of Greece and so on, but these are the earliest of these that we find. They also were famous for cuneiform writing. I know most of you can read that easily. The, uh, the term cuneiform is from a root that means wedge, and thus the wedge-shaped distinctive character of cuneiform writing gave rise originally to its name. The first time somebody dug it out of the ground and they saw all those wedges, then they used a Latin term to describe it along those lines. So cuneiform writing was the first form of written sort of alphabetical writing that we have ever discovered. And it uh, is very important for that reason, and it's of course in this particular form of script that these myths uh, became uh, known to us. There, were in, there is in this region to this day a kind of structure that's called a ziggurat, and it looks something like that. There's several of these that are still there. If you ever travel through Iraq, some of you have done military time there and probably have seen some of these, but uh, these are there. There's, there's several that are uh, in more or less in ruins. This is one of the best preserved. It is in the city of Ur, mentioned in connection with Abraham. Abraham undoubtedly saw this structure as he was growing up. He would have been born after this thing was completed. Ziggurats were religious structures. The priest would go up, if you look on the right-hand side of that, that long staircase, the priest would go up slowly in a kind of religious rite to the top of the ziggurat, and at the top of it would be a little cubicle room, kind of like a chapel or something. And in the ancient Sumerian religious understanding, the god or gods would come down from heaven and the priest would go up and they would meet at that point in the middle. And the word Babylon, meaning gate of the gods, actually had its roots in that particular uh, kind of religious expression. This is probably, almost certainly, behind the story in the Old Testament of the Tower of Babel. It was probably some tower like this, and the ambitions of humankind at that point were to build the biggest, most colossal, you know, ziggurat that had been built to date, and it would outdo all the others, and the whole story of the Tower of Babel flows against the backdrop of that. But those are fairly commonly uh, available even today to, uh, to find over there. The cosmology of Sumer and of Mesopotamia, and the one that really became more or less the household understanding in the ancient world touched by this religious outlook, even in Egypt and other, other areas more uh, uh, distant from Mesopotamia, look like this. All of those little wavy lines on the outside of the circle are a great salt sea. It was vast, in fact, virtually endless, unordered, void, dark. It was commonly called the deep. The word was Tiamat, which was also assigned to the name of a deity, a female deity, who stood for the principle of disorder. The Hebrew word 
Tihom, connected to Tiamat, is viewed generally as essentially the same word, just in a different language, a little adjustment in the pronunciation, but the same word. So the word that we read in the Old Testament text that uh, the, referring to the deep is the same word. And it was this idea of a great unordered expanse of salt water with no organization, no meaning, just there, you see. Somehow or other, and the accounts would vary based on mythological variables, but somehow or other there came to be in the midst of this great expanse a kind of bubble, that's the circle, which was also sometimes thought of as something like an egg. It's a very odd expression, isn't it? In the, Hebrew, in the uh, Genesis account, the spirit brooded. That's a word that is applied specifically to how mother hens deal with eggs. And it's an odd word to use, but it's the very word that is used in the Genesis text there. The spirit brooded over the egg, you see. Well, in the Sumerian myth, there was this kind of circle or bubble or egg, and within it was a place of order in the midst of a vast expanse of disorder. And that was the great contest that was envisioned in Enuma Elish, was a contest between order and disorder, and the fight between them, the struggle between them. This egg has within it three different levels. You see that. The level that is above was called the sky, and it's demarcated by a great dome. The dome was solid. The ancient people would go outside, they'd look up, they see this, what appears to be, even to us, as we just look outside casually, a great dome. The dome is bigger if you're in Montana. <laughs> but still the same dome, you know. And you look up and you notice the color of the dome is blue. And the ancients thought, ah, oh, that must mean there's water on the other side of it. So there was water above the dome. And they were separated or protected from it by this kind of surface, you see. Under it was a great expanse, the kind of atmosphere. It was within the dome that they believed the heavenly bodies moved, the sun, the moon, the stars, and so on. So the dome is way up there in their minds, not nearly as far as, you know, they didn't have a modern understanding, but, but all of these things were within the dome and they were used to measure time, etc. The earth is a flat disk floating in fresh water. And so if you look at the middle tier there, the earth, key as it's called, was surrounded by a freshwater ocean that was separated from the salt water that's outside. Beneath was the netherworld, something like what's called in Hebrew Sheol. It's kind of a dark place to which people descend upon their death. It's a mysterious place. Even in the mythology of the ancient world, there was no clear definition as to what was up, you know, down there, but that seemed to be the place where people went. There was no great joy that was associated with it. It was strictly a place of just the, the kind of the end of life and, and a kind of dark place, the netherworld. And then below that, of course, you have that kind of underside dome, as it were, inverted, and then once again you're back in the salt sea. So that's the way the Sumerians viewed the universe. That was picked up by the Babylonians, it was picked up by the Assyrians, it was picked up even to some degree with, with some somewhat considerable adjustments by the Egyptians, and it was the widespread cosmology of the ancient world 
outside the Hebrew world. We're going to leave that aside for a moment, but that was the way people commonly viewed the universe at that time. The chief deities of Sumer are these. I mention these because some of these are actually mentioned in the Old Testament. An or Anu was the god of the sky or the heavens. Enlil was the uh, god that was probably the primary one till he was bumped off by Marduk. And so Marduk is one that is mentioned uh, in the Old Testament in various prophetic writings. He was a Babylonian deity and sort of retrofitted into this Sumerian myth, but he became very important in uh, later mythological expressions. Inki was the god of the sea. Here's a little, uh, caught this guy with my digital camera the other day, so there he is, uh, Inki. Um, Ki was Mother Earth. The whole idea of Earth having a kind of maternal quality goes back as far as human memory runs. And so the idea of Mother Earth going clear back to Ninhursag, this uh, ancient uh, uh, goddess. Yeah, these were the four kind of top deities. Then you have some subordinate deities, one of whom is called Sin or Nana. That's the moon god. If you look up uh, there, there, oh my, there it is. You see my little thingy? So that little crescent is seen, that was the moon god. Um, Utu, or Shamash, was the sun god. Inanna, or Ishtar, was the god of love and war. Ishtar is the name Esther. And so Esther in the Old Testament, whose original name was, anybody know what her Hebrew name was? It was, anybody know, the top of your head? It was, um, now I'm blanking on it. Um, <laughs> Hadassah, remember that? Hadassah was her Hebrew name, but she was given a name by the Persians who also had picked up some of these, the name Ishtar or Esther. So uh, there's a little shot of Esther. I'm sure she was better looking than that. The first dynasty was Sumer, and that goes down to about the year 2300. The second dynasty in Mesopotamia was called the Akkadian, after its chief city, Akkad, and the first king of the Akkadian dynasty was a guy by the name of Sargon, or Sargon the Great, and there's a kind of funeral mass that was associated with him. He controlled that much region, so he really did have a very expansive empire at a very early time in human history. Uh, down here, of course, is the Persian Gulf, but it extends way over into Elam, up into parts of Turkey, that whole little crescent is called the Fertile Crescent, and he controlled a fair amount of that. Last week, we talked about Sargon in connection with the Assyrians. He's usually called Sargon II. He took his name honoring this first Sargon, who had lived hundreds of years earlier and was the king of this Akkadian dynasty. All right, Enuma Elish was a discovery that was made by a guy named Austin Henry Layard. I mentioned him last week. He was like a uh, British adventurer who lived in the mid-1800s. He was the early version of Indiana Jones, only better and for real, you know. And he was a guy who believed the Bible fundamentally. I don't know what the state of his heart was, but he shared a common conviction that when the Bible was told these historical details, that it was actually uh, understood as a, a true and reliable account of ancient historical information, and so he believed on that basis that there must be a city of Nineveh somewhere. It had never been found. 
Many liberal scholars at the time believed that Nineveh was pure, Nineveh was pure myth, it didn't exist, and Austin Henry Layard was determined to go and prove them wrong. And so he went out and had many adventures. His whole story is a, is a uh, kind of a fun, rollicking account all by itself. But in the process, he discovered the site of Nineveh. He had to, he had to do a lot of searching, but he finally found it. And he uh, discovered its location. And then as he began to excavate, he found within it a probably maybe the single most famous and important archaeological discovery of the 1800s, which was called the Library of Ashurbanipal. Ashurbanipal was a Assyrian king. He lived in round numbers about the year 650 BC. He was not only a great military character, but he was a great scholar. And so he wanted to accumulate in one place all of the writings of the ancient world that he deemed to be worth keeping and saving. And so he assembled them in a very well-organized way in a huge library. And this library was uh, you know, secured and so on, and then over the passage of time, it fell into obscurity and it was discovered by Austin Henry Layard. Obviously, all of the writing there was in cuneiform, so they couldn't read any of it, but Layard was smart enough to figure out that this is probably important stuff. Unfortunately, his archaeological technique was a little rough compared to modern standards. He just went in there with an axe and began chopping up these things and loading them on the backs of wagons and hauling it off, of course, to the British Museum, where it's safely kept to this day. And so what you find is a lot of these artifacts that were discovered there are now housed in the British Museum, and they were reassembled, kind of like putting together a great jigsaw puzzle. It took about 30 years to figure out how to read cuneiform. So from the time it was discovered, it was about uh, 1880, before somebody really kind of cracked the code and was able to start reading this. And most of what was found was pretty pedestrian, you know, IRS records, that kind of thing. But, but uh, some of what was discovered was, uh, to say the very least, uh, surprising and just kind of captured the public imagination. And two documents in particular that were translated and got a whole lot of attention were this creation myth known as Enuma Elish and the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, which has within it a, an account of a great flood. And we're gonna look at that next week. So next week we're gonna look at the Gilgamesh Epic and the account of a vast flood over the whole earth and a guy who built a boat and survived the flood thereby. And it comes out of pagan literature discovered in Ashurbanipal's library in 1850. And so it's a very, very interesting and intriguing account that we'll look at separately. But right now we're interested in the other of these great discoveries, which is called the uh, Enuma Elish. I just wanted to run you forward uh, a little bit to here. The third dynasty of Mesopotamia was called Ur. Chaldea is the general region of lower Mesopotamia, that region kind of north of the Persian Gulf. And so when the Old Testament says that Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldees, it's virtually certain that it's referring to this particular city. It was a major city. It was the capital of the third dynasty. The years here went from about 1221 down to uh, around the year 2000. Abraham was probably born a little bit later outside of this time frame, maybe about the year 1951. So he was born in the shadow 
of these great civilizations of Mesopotamia at an intermediate period when there was no great single power dominating the region, but it was still uh, probably the most sophisticated uh, civilization uh, of the world at that time. I'd like to talk a little bit to you just about the content of uh, Enuma Elish. If we had about an hour and you had the patience, we could work through the details of this. I'm just going to say to you in, in terms of just one descriptive adjective to describe Enuma Elish, bizarre, you know. <laughs> Uh, it, has, it has some of the most wild and crazy images and strange details that you could imagine. Some of it is really quite incomprehensible, confusing, but on the whole you begin to pick up the general drift of the main story of it. So scholars continue to puzzle over the details and you'll find commentaries written on Enuma Elish and that sort of thing is certainly out there if you're interested in hunting it down. I don't want to take you through all that because there would be three people in class next week if I did. So I'm just, I'm gonna give, give you the quickest kind of overview of the main kind of th thread of the story, and then I wanna get back into Genesis chapter one. Enuma Elish began, by the way, it's in seven tablets, and those seven tablets correspond very roughly, I, I don't wanna push this point at all, but very roughly to a kind of seven days of creation. It is in fact in seven, there's not a, not a nice neat tidy correlation with the Genesis account, but there's seven tablets and seven movements that correlate roughly, roughly with the Genesis account. The basic story begins with a great unordered primeval chaos. As I was mentioning earlier, this kind of great expanded salt sea there were two deities associated with that. One was called Apsu, A-P-S-U, and the other was called Tiamat, T-I-A-M-U-T. Tiamat was the one, uh, by the way, I misspelled it, T-I-A-M-A-T, Tiamat, uh, is the one that became the, the most dominant of these two. Both of them stand for chaos. Both of them stand for that which disintegrates things, causes things to kind of fall apart. And so the ancient Sumerian view was that there was a kind of contest between that which orders and that which disorders. And Tiamat especially was the goddess of disorder and was always the one who was trying to bring disorder in, you know. That's why all of us who have had kids or grandkids around the house for a week or so and then they leave you feel like you've been visited by Tiamat. You know what I'm saying? You just... <sighs> and uh, so that's, that was, they, they had that experience too, and they had to attribute it to something, and so that was their mythological understanding. Now, Enuma Elish goes through a rather convoluted story of the evolution of various gods and so on. I'm going to bypass all of that, but simply to say it arrives at a certain point at certain primary gods who become the great champions or heroes of the story. One is Anu, the god of the sky. One is Ea, connected with the earth. Ea, E-A-R-T-H, earth. And another one was Marduk, who was the Babylonian god who comes in and really becomes the great hero of the story. So what you have is a face-off in kind of the, the, the climactic moment of the myth between Tiamat on the one hand and Marduk on the other. 
And Marduk makes a deal with the other gods and says, look, I will go to battle with Tiamat. I will risk my existence in this conflict, but the deal is if I win, then you need to make me the chief deity. And I need to get all of the most honorable titles and so on. So that was a deal. So all the other gods, in a sense, bought off on that. Okay, you're our man. Go in there and do your best. And so Marduk goes to battle against Tiamat, and as the story unfolds, what he does, his strategy, is he defeats her, first of all, by using wind. Uh, ruah, he uses wind. And it's a very strong wind that he blows, and it's so powerful it forces open her mouth, and she cannot shut her mouth. Because the wind is blowing in. And then he takes his spear, and he throws it into her mouth, and it goes down into her gullet, and she is slain. And so he defeats Tiamat, and then he splits her in two, and he takes the upper part of her and pushes it up, and it becomes that dome, you see, keeping out the chaos that's outside, and the lower part of her becomes the earth. Now, to be honest, I don't know if any self-respecting Sumerian actually believed this, you know. I think, I think the ancient people were smarter than we give them credit for, and many times they knew perfectly well that they were dealing with myth. This is myth. But myth, of course, is story intended to convey a thought or an idea or a philosophy or some understanding of, you know, the way things are without anyone actually thinking that somehow in some sort of history these things actually happen. But, uh, you know, people differ on that. But anyway, that's the way the story goes. Once Marduk has been successful in defeating Tiamat, he then does a couple of other things. Once this expanse has been created, the sky and so on, he puts in them stars, sun, moon, and specifically it's stated that they are put there to regulate seasons, times, days, weeks, years. And so there's a understanding that the heavenly bodies are there as a kind of celestial clock. The other thing that he does is he creates humankind, he creates us. And so the other thing that's interesting is there's some kind of connection between human creation and this God who has defeated the forces of chaos. So that's the basic storyline of Enuma Elish. Now, when we you know, turn to the biblical text, I think most of you would grant that as bizarre as Enuma Elish may be, there are at least certain points where there's intriguing parallels. And that, of course, has been one of the most fascinating aspects of the discussion as to how exactly do we understand the connection between these two. A few little details, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but are some of the ones that may be just of interest in our present conversation. One of the parallels is that in both accounts, both in Anuma Elish and in the Genesis account, great acts take place by virtue of the spoken word. In Genesis, God said, let there be light. In Enuma Elish, the gods speak and things happen. But I want us to always keep our eye not just on similarities but on differences. The big difference between the Genesis account of God speaking and the account that we find in the creation myth is that in the creation myth, the speaking is kind of like magic incantations, you see. 
the gods say certain words that are sort of like voodoo or some kind of you know, formula statement that by some sort of magic causes things to happen. Notice how in Genesis there's none of that. God isn't doing any incantations. God's power is not questioned. God speaks and it happens, you see. So you've got a parallel, but you've also got what clearly represents an alternative understanding of the nature of the power of God. Another point that's uh, similar, but where there's a little bit of difference, is the nature of light. Both accounts have light coming into the picture before the sun is created. It's always interesting, isn't it? We, of course, think light comes from the sun. The ancients didn't think that way. They thought of light as a prior reality. The sun shines, but there would be light even without the sun, would be their view. That seems to be the biblical view. God creates light, you see, early in the story. Later, two or three days later, he creates the sun. And this does represent in both counts an idea that the power of God comes in as that which brings order in the place of chaos. And one of the most primitive and ongoing understandings of humankind has been that light implies order, darkness implies disorder. Even if I could just right now do a little experiment and shut off all the lights in this room and plunge us into darkness, would you feel that that was an organizing experience? You know, we immediately feel the trauma of being plunged into darkness, and we're not so sure now where things are. Well, the, you know, humankind has had that understanding all the way through. So the bringing of light has always been associated with bringing order to a place of chaos. And in both accounts, we find it happening. But again, in the case of the Genesis record, God simply speaks, and the light is there. Whereas in the uh, Enuma Elisha account, it, it uh, involves much, much more of a contest, much more of a question as to what the outcome is going to be. Everybody's biting their nails. They're not so sure who's going to win this battle. In the Bible, there is no contest. Isn't that interesting? There's no contest. There's no battle, no question. Nobody's standing around wondering who's going to win. This is not a contest. This is God acting but God acting in a way that was comprehensible to the ancients, you see. Another, uh, another little uh, detail that we see, this, by the way, is in the, in the second day, is the creation of this dome. The obvi- the, uh, we mentioned this earlier, the idea that there's a great dome up there and that there's waters beyond it seems to be the assumption of the Genesis account, doesn't it? Speaking of waters above the firmament or the dome, waters below, that does, at least on the face of it, sound strikingly like what we find in Anuma Elish. Again, what's different, however, is that once again, there's no contest, there's no question where the power lies. God simply speaks these things into being. He just announces it. Let there be an expanse. Let there be a dome. Let there be a firmament. It happens. And it was so. You see, these are powerful words. To a Sumerian reading that Genesis account, we don't know if they ever had a chance to because they predated the Hebrews by a thousand years, but, you know, to a Sumerian reading that, that would have been a slap in the face to their account of creation. Because here's a deity who doesn't have to fight. Here's a deity who is not, 
you know, in the least bit disturbed by the vicissitudes of the created order. He simply speaks, and it was so, you see. And the great power of a statement like that is supposed to say there's a different way of thinking about the creation than this bizarre conflict of all kinds of competing forces that leave us in a great deal of concern and question about what the outcome might turn out to be. We have other uh, details here, as you know. We have the uh, uh, placing on the fourth day of lights in heaven. That is, again, a parallel between the two. Marduk places the sun, the moon, and the stars in this you know, expanse of heaven to regulate, to time the calendar, as it were, of the day and the year and so on. We have a similar kind of thing in the Hebrew account, uh, Genesis chapter 1. And that was, again, a point where there's a considerable amount of similarity, but again, the differences, I think, are notable. That, uh, that in this case, God is simply placing those things there by his sovereign authority, and that they will become the, the rulers under God's control of life and the way we live it, the calendar by which we live, and so on. And that became a very important part of the Hebrew understanding, their figurative understanding of these heavenly bodies was that they were somehow associated to rule on earth. When the Genesis says, let them rule, the Hebrews actually took that rather seriously and they had an understanding that the powers of great civilizations, whether it was Babylon or Assyria or whatever, were backed up in some sense by heavenly powers, principalities. That was a Hebrew understanding. It's never taught in the Old Testament as such. It's implied in parts of the book of Daniel, but nevertheless, it was a common view that was associated with the Hebrews and, and uh, others as well. That's why when you read in the Old Testament of great political upset, you see, the collapse of a great civilization, oftentimes the figurative description of that will be in terms of the powers of heaven being shaken up, the sun darkened, the moon not giving its light, stars falling from heaven. That kind of language is found in the book of Isaiah, for example, chapters 13 and 14, to describe the collapse of Babylon, a political power. But the figurative way of saying it is to tie it to those celestial bodies that are ruling. The collapse of Babylon would be the collapse of Babylon's stars, if you will. And that kind of figurative language is carried all through the scriptures. It's why sometimes we in our non-Hebrew tradition don't get it. We read in the Bible, the sun doesn't give its light, and we think, oh, how's that going to happen? You know, we, we, want to, we want to immediately interpret it a little bit too woodenly. The stars fell from the sky. Imagine that. Well, the Hebrews didn't take it. They, they weren't saying the stars are actually going to fall from the sky. It would only take about one of them to do us in, you know. It wasn't that at all. It was that this is describing the great collapse of political power. And this all goes back originally to that sort of Genesis view of the nature of the heavenly bodies and how they functioned in human experience. The fifth day, we have the creation of these great sea monsters. Uh, again, in the Enuma Elish, they are threatening creatures. In Genesis, they are fully under God's control. But maybe one of the most striking points of similarity and difference comes on the sixth day with the creation of humanity. 
In the biblical account, we are said to be created in the image of God. There is some, in both cases, connection between humankind that is distinctive with respect to the relationship to God or the gods. In the uh, Enuma Elish account, however, we are created to be slaves. Humankind are created to serve the gods in a kind of slavish fashion. Our lives are conceived of as being hard lives of rigor in which we are doing all we can to please the gods in a kind of quid pro quo worship. So the ancient Sumerian view was that the gods needed my help and so I would bring sacrifices. Those would nourish the deity and in turn the deity would maybe answer my prayer. Quid pro quo, this for that. Deity, I'll do this for you if you'll do that for me. And we have all kinds of reliefs and so on from, from that time in history in which you see that sort of um, uh, religious practice being uh, um, you know, sort of depicted. The Bible knows nothing of quid pro quo worship. That's why the Old Testament says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, God doesn't need our worship. God doesn't need our sacrifice. We don't sacrifice to God for him. We do it for us. That's, that's something we need. You know, he doesn't need that. And the Genesis 1 account is already giving us that. And it's giving us an entirely different understanding of the dignity of humankind. Notice that in Genesis 1, humankind are created in the image of God, not just with his blood, but to bear his imprint, his signet ring. We are placed here to rule. Let them have dominion. Nothing of that in Enuma Elish. There's no sense of the dignity of our, sta of our status. We are, to, we are to expand this place of order. We're placed in a garden, but the garden is to be pushed out. And this growth of order is to continue taking place as we, in service to God's great destiny for us, do this labor of bringing, as it were, beauty where there was ugliness and so on. And all of this is uh, part of the great celebration of our worth, you know. Well, this is very foreign to the, uh, to the kind of thing we find in Enuma Elish. So what I'm trying to say in all of this, if you can kind of you know, follow me with the details here, is you have this surprising correlation followed by, at the same time, some very surprising and interesting differences. Genesis 1 has been subjected by in, uh, to interpretive efforts that go on a whole spectrum of options. So on the one hand, I've read, and probably you have too, those who've taken the view of Genesis 1, this is simply the Hebrews borrowing from Babylonian mythology. It's just warmed over myth, and that's all there is to it, and end of conversation, you know. And that you'll find that in some circles, and to this day, you can pretty commonly find that view out there. Then I have other people on the other side of the spectrum, you know them as well, and they want to make Genesis 1 a, a, a scientific explanation of what God did certain thousands of years ago. And, that's, and if you'd been there with a camera, you could have taken pictures of that stuff. You know. There's people out there like that. Maybe in this room, I don't know. But kind of a, just kind of an insistence. The Bible says it, that's the way it is. If you don't believe that, you don't believe the Bible. End of conversation. I've had that kind of conversation. And when I say, I'm not so sure of that, they just call me a liberal. 
I'm, you might like to know that. I move in, in interesting circles in my life, and I have, and I've been in some places where I was called a liberal and in other places where I was called a conservative or fundamentalist. That means I must be right, right? I mean, that, that's all I can figure. I'm a Presbyterian, that's what I am. And Presbyterians famously try to find the balance, the middle way, you know, and that's what I'm, I want to try to suggest to you here. I think both of those views are fundamentally misguided. To say the Hebrews simply borrowed from the Babylonians is not to do any kind of justice, really, to the Genesis 1 text. To say that we have to take, however, the, the terms of Genesis 1 as describing in some kind of literal fact what actually happened does present some colossal problems. Uh, you know. The, I think, proper approach here is to say that God is speaking in a way that was comprehensible to the first people that were going to read this text. And if we are going to come in a kind of artificial insistence, say, oh no, it's got to be scientifically accurate, you know, that is what gets us into difficulty. Because what does scientifically accurate mean? What does it mean? You know, we live in the year, what? What is it? 20, is it 2011 already? <laughs> you know, and we have an idea of what scientific accuracy means. We have a certain view of the world and so on. You realize if we went back 500 years, current up-to-date scientific accuracy would look very different, right, wouldn't it? And if we went back a thousand years, current up-to-date accepted scientific accuracy would look very different. And if we went back 1,500 years, it would look different yet. So we've got times in history when flat earth was scientific accuracy. We have times in history when Newtonian physics was scientific accuracy. We live in a time when Einsteinian physics is, but who knows, in 500 years maybe some new genius will come and give us a new vision of scientific accuracy. And you realize if the Bible spoke in what was contemporary scientific accuracy for us today, it would, by the majority of people who've looked at this, been viewed as wrong because it wasn't scientific by their standards. Why would God strap himself to that? My, my own conviction is if God did speak to us with scientific accuracy, none of us would get it. You know? John Calvin says, God lisps to us in his word. Now, lisp, he means that was kind of the term that was used in his day for baby talk. God comes to us in this remarkable book, so profound, you can spend a lifetime, multiple lifetimes, examining it, and Calvin says what God is doing is speaking to us here in baby talk. If God actually spoke to us with the wisdom he has, it would so transcend our understanding, it would be utterly incomprehensible to us. So as you, as a grandparent, speak to a two-year-old in very limited, tiny words, vocabulary, that hopefully is comprehensible to that child because you love that child, so God gets down on his hands and knees and speaks to us in tiny little syllables that we can understand because he loves us. And why should we be offended if God has decided in the original formulation of this text to take the world as it sort of casually appears 
and that explained that behind all of that is a great sovereign God who was in no contest with anybody, who simply spoke these things into being. He did the things that were apparent to the human eye in such a way that there could be no question that he is the God of gods, Lord of lords, and that we are bound to worship him. And if we get lost in the deep weeds of, well, you know, is this scientifically accurate, we have utterly missed the point. The point is that God is God. He did it. And he did it by methods that we probably certainly don't get yet. But that he did it. And that, that can be a foundation for worship, it seems to me, is a perfectly legitimate meaning to draw out of this remarkable Genesis 1 text. So if that makes me a liberal, so be it. That makes me a fundamentalist, who cares? You know, what I care about is the word of God, this great truth communicated, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is declared to be the one in whom all things consist. And so, if that's what we get out of this text, then I think we got the right answer. Sumerian Epic of Creation The First Tablet When in the height heaven was not named, and the earth beneath did not yet bear a name, and the primeval Apsu, who begat them, and Chaos, Tiamat, the mother of them both, their waters mingled together, and no field was formed, no marsh was to be seen. When of the gods none had been called into being, and none bore a name, and no destinies were ordained, then were created the gods in the midst of heaven. Lahamu and Lahamu were called into being. Ages increased. Then Ansar and Kisar were created, and over them, long were the days, then came forth. Anu their son, Ansar and Anu, and the god Anu. Nudimud, whom his fathers, his begetters, abounding in all wisdom, he was exceedingly strong, he had no rival, Thus were established, and were the great gods. But Tiamat and Absu were still in confusion. They were troubled, and in disorder. Apru was not diminished in might, and Tiamat roared. She smote and their deeds. Their way was evil. Then Absu, the begetter of the great gods, cried unto Mumu, his minister, and said unto him, O Mumu, thou minister that rejoicest my spirit, come unto Tiamat, let us go. So they went, and before Tiamat they laid down. They consulted on a plan with regard to the gods, their sons. Apsu opened his mouth and spake, and unto Tiamat, the glistening one, he addressed the word, Lacuna, their way, Lacuna. By day I cannot rest, by night I cannot lay down in peace, but I will destroy their way, I will, Lacuna. Let there be lamentation, and let us lie down again in peace. When Tiamat heard these words, she raged and cried aloud. 
she lacuna grievously lacuna she uttered a curse and unto absu she spake what then shall we do let their way be made difficult and let us lie down again in peace mamu answered and gave counsel to absu lacuna and hostile to the gods was the counsel mamu gave come their way is strong but thou shalt destroy it then by day shalt thou have rest by night shalt thou lie down in peace absu hearkened unto him his countenance grew bright since mamu planned evil against the gods his sons lacuna he was afraid lacuna his knees became weak they gave way beneath him because of the evil which their firstborn had planned lacuna there lacuna they altered lacuna they lacuna lamentation they sat in sorrow lacuna then ear who knoweth all that is went up and he beheld their muttering a lacuna of about thirty illegible lines he spake lacuna thy he hath conquered and lacuna he weepeth and sitteth in tribulation lacuna of fear lacuna we shall not lie down in peace lacuna absu is laid waste lacuna and mumu who was taken captive in lacuna thou didst lacuna let us lie down in peace lacuna they will smite lacuna let us lie down in peace lacuna thou shalt take vengeance for them lacuna unto the tempest shalt thou lacuna and tiamat hearkened unto the word of the bright god and said shalt thou entrust let us wage war lacuna the gods in the midst of lacuna for the gods did she create they banded themselves together and at the side of tiamat they advanced they were furious they devised mischief without resting night and day they prepared for battle fuming and raging they joined their forces and made war tiamat who formed all things made in addition weapons invincible she spawned monster serpents sharp of tooth merciless of fang with poison instead of blood she filled their bodies fierce monster vipers she clothed with terror with splendor she decked them she made them of lofty stature whoever beheld them terror overcame him their bodies reared up and none could withstand their attack she set up vipers and dragons and the monster lahamu and hurricanes and raging hounds and scorpion men and mighty tempests and fishmen and rams they bore cruel weapons without fear of the fight her commands were mighty none could resist them after this fashion huge of stature she made eleven kinds of monsters among the gods who were her sons inasmuch as he had given her support she exalted kingu in the midst she raised him to power to march before the forces to lead the host to give the battle signal to advance the attack to direct the battle to control the fight unto him she entrusted in costly raiment she made him sit saying i have uttered thy spell in the assembly of the gods i have raised thee to power the dominion over all the gods i have entrusted to him be thou exalted thou my chosen spouse may they magnify thy name over all of them the anunnaki she gave the tablets of destiny on his breast she laid them saying thy command shall not be without avail and the word of thy mouth shall be established now kingu 
thus exalted, having received the power of Anu, decreed the fate amongst the gods, his sons, saying, Let the opening of your mouth quench the fire god. Whoso is exalted in the battle, let him display his might. The Second Tablet Tiamat made weighty her handiwork. Evil she wrought against the gods, her children. To avenge Absu, Tiamat planned evil. But how she had collected her forces, the god unto Ea divulged. Ea hearkened to this thing, and he was grievously afflicted, and he sat in sorrow. The days went by, and his anger was appeased, and to the place of Ansar his father, he took his way. He went, and, standing before Ansar, the father who begat him, all that Tiamat had plotted he repeated unto him, saying, Tiamat our mother hath conceived a hatred for us, with all her force she rageth, full of wrath. All of the gods have turned to her, with those whom ye created have go at her side. They are banded together, and at the side of Tiamat they advance. They are furious. They despise mischief without resting night and day. They prepare for battle, fuming and raging. They have joined their forces and are making war. Amu Hubar, who formed all things, hath made in addition weapons invincible. She has spawned monster serpents, sharp of tooth and merciless of fang. With poison instead of blood, she hath filled their bodies. Fierce monster vipers she hath clothed with terror. With splendour she hath decked them. She hath made them of lofty stature. Whoever beholdeth them is overcome by terror. Their bodies rear up, and none can withstand their attack. She hath set up vipers and dragons, and the monster Lahamu, and hurricanes and the raging hounds, and scorpion men and mighty tempests, and fishmen and rams. They bear cruel weapons without fear of the fight. Her commands are mighty, none can resist them. After this fashion, huge of stature, she hath made eleven monsters. Among the gods who are her sons, inasmuch as he hath given her support, she hath exalted Kingu, in their midst she has raised him to power, to march before the forces, to lead the host, to give the battle signal, to advance to the attack, to direct the battle, to control the fight. Unto him hath she entrusted, in costly raiment she has made him sit, saving, I have uttered thy spell, in the assembly of the gods I have raised thee to power, the dominion over all the gods I have entrusted unto thee. Be thou exalted, thou my chosen spouse. May they magnify thy name over all of them. She hath given him the tablets of destiny. On his breast she has laid them, saying, Thy command shall not be without avail, and the mouth of thy word shall be established. Now Kingu, thus exalted, having received the power of Anu, decreed the fate for the gods, her sons, saying, let the opening of your mouth quench the fire god. Whoso is exalted in the battle, let him display his might. When Ansar heard how Tiamat was mightily in revolt, he bit his lips, his mind was not at peace, Lacuna. He made a bitter lamentation, Lacuna. Battle, Lacuna. Thou, Lacuna. Mamu and Aspu, thou hast smitten. But Tiamat hath exalted Kingu, and where is one who can oppose her? Lacuna. Deliberation, Lacuna. The Lacuna. Of the gods. Nudimud. 
a lacuna of about a dozen lines occurs here. Ansar unto his son address the word. Lacuna, my mighty hero, whose strength is great and whose onslaughts cannot be withstood, go and stand before Tiamat, that her spirit may be appeased, that her heart may be merciful. But if she will not hearken to thy word, our word thou shalt speak unto her, that she may be pacified. But he heard the word of his father Ansar, and he directed his path to her. Toward her he took the way. Anne drew nigh. He beheld the muttering of Tiamat, but he could not withstand her, and turned back. Lacuna. Ansar Lacuna. He spake to him. A gap of over twenty lines occurs here. An avenger. Lacuna. Valiant. Lacuna. In the place of his decision. Lacuna. He spake unto him. Lacuna. Thy father, thou art my son, who maketh merciful his heart, Lacuna. To the battle shalt thou draw nigh. He that shall behold thee shall have peace. And the Lord rejoiced at the word of his father, and he drew nigh and stood before Ansar. Ansar beheld him, and his heart was filled with joy. He kissed him on the lips, and his fear departed from him. O my father, let not the word of thy lips be overcome. Let me go, that I may accomplish all that is in thy heart. O Ansar, let not the word of thy lips be overcome. Let me go, that I may accomplish all that is in thy heart. What man is it, who hath brought thee forth to battle? Lacuna. Tiamat, who is a woman, is armed and attacketh thee. Lacuna. Rejoice and be glad. The neck of Tiamat shalt thou swiftly trample underfoot. Lacuna. Rejoice and be glad. The neck of Tiamat shalt thou swiftly trample underfoot. O my son, who knoweth all wisdom, pacify Tiamat with thy pure incantation. Speedily set out upon thy way, for thy blood shall not be poured out, thou shalt return again. The Lord rejoiced at the word of his father, his heart exalted, and unto his father he spake, O Lord of the gods, destiny of the great gods, if I your avenger, Conquer Tiamat and give you life. Appoint an assembly, and make my fate preeminent and proclaim it. In Upsu Kenaku, seat yourself joyfully together. With my word in place of you I will decree fate. May whatsoever I do remain unaltered. May the word of my lips never be chanced nor made of no avail. The Third Tablet Ansar opened his mouth, and unto Gaga, his minister spake the word, O Gaga, thou minister that rejoicest my spirit, unto Lamu and Lahamu I will send thee, Lacuna. Thou canst attain, Lacuna. Thou shalt cause to be brought before thee, Lacuna. Let the gods, all of them, make ready for a feast, and at a banquet let them sit. Let them eat bread, let them mix wine, that for Marduk, their avenger, they may decree the fate. Go, Gaga, stand before them, and all that I tell thee repeat unto them, and say, Ansar, your son, hath sent me. The purpose of his heart he hath made known unto me. He saith that Tiamat our mother has conceived a hatred for us. With all her force she rageth, full of wrath. All the gods have turned to her. With those whom ye created they go at her side. They are banded together, at the side of Tiamat they advance. They are furious, they devise mischief without resting day and night. 
They prepare for battle, fuming and raging. They have joined their forces and are making war. Muhabar, who formed all things, hath made in addition weapons invincible. She has spawned monster serpents, sharp of tooth and merciless of fang. With poison instead of blood, she hath filled their bodies. Fierce monster vipers, she hath clothed them with terror. With splendor she hath decked them. She hath made them of lofty stature. Whoever beholdeth them, terror overcometh him. Their bodies rear up, and none can withstand their attack. She hath set up vipers, and dragons, and the monster Lahamu, and hurricanes, and raging bounds, and scorpion men, and mighty tempests, and fishmen, and rams. They bear merciless weapons, without fear of the fight. Her commands are mighty, none can resist them. After this fashion, huge of stature, she hath made eleven monsters. Among the gods who are her sons, inasmuch as he hath given her support, she hath exalted Kingu. In their midst she has raised him to power, to march before the forces, to lead the host, to give the battle signal, to advance to the attack, to direct the battle, to control the fight. Unto him hath she entrusted, in costly raiment she hath made him sit, saying, I have uttered thy spell, in the assembly of the gods I have raised thee to power. The dominion over all the gods I have entrusted to thee. Be thou exalted, thou my chosen spouse. May they magnify their name over all of them, over the Anunnaki. She hath given him the tablets of destiny, on his breast she laid them, saying, Thy command shall be not without avail, and the word of thy mouth shall be established. Now Kingu, thus exalted, having received the power of Anu, decreed the fate for the gods, her sons, saying, Let the opening of your mouth quench the fire god. Whoso is exalted in the battle, let him display his might. I sent Anu, but he could not withstand her. Nudimud was afraid and turned back, but Marduk has set out, the director of the gods, your son, to set out against Tiamat, his heart hath prompted him. He opened his mouth and spake unto me, If I, your avenger, conquer Tiamat and give you life, Appoint an assembly, make my fate preeminent, and proclaim it. In Upsukanaku, seat yourself joyfully together. With my word in place of you, I will decree fate. May whatsoever I do remain unaltered. May the words of my lips never be changed, nor have made of no avail. Hasten, therefore, and swiftly decree for him the fate which you bestow. That he may go and fight your strong enemy. Gaga went. He took his way, and humbly before Lamu and Lahamu, the gods his fathers, he made obeisance, and kissed the ground at their feet. He humbled himself, then he stood up and spake unto them, saying, Ansar your son hath sent me. The purpose of his heart he has made known to me. He saith that Tiamat our mother has conceived a hatred for us. With all her force she raged, full of wrath. All the gods have turned to her, with those whom ye created, they go at her side. They are banded together, and at the side of Tiamat they advance. They are furious. They devise mischief without resting, night and day. They prepare for battle, fuming and raging. They have joined their forces, and are making war. Tiamat, who formed all things, hath made in addition weapons invincible. She hath spawned monster serpents, sharp of tooth and merciless of fang. With poison instead of blood she hath filled their bodies. Fierce monster vipers, she hath clothed with terror. With splendor she hath decked them. 
She hath made them of lofty stature. Whoever beholdeth them, terror overcometh him. Their bodies rear up, and none can withstand their attack. She hath set up vipers and dragons, and the monster Lahamu, and hurricanes and raging hounds and scorpion men, and mighty tempests and fishmen and rams. They bear merciless weapons, without fear of the fight. Her commands are mighty, none can resist them. After this fashion, huge of stature, hath she made eleven monsters. Among the gods who are her sons, inasmuch as he hath given her support, she hath exalted Kingu, in the midst she hath raised him to power, to march before the forces, to lead the host, to give the battle signal, to advance the attack, to direct the battle, to control the fight. Unto him she hath entrusted, in costly raiment she hath made him sit, saying, I have uttered thy spell, in the assembly of the gods, I have raised thee to power. The dominion over all the gods I have entrusted unto thee. Be thou exalted, thou my chosen spouse. May they magnify thy name over all of them, the Anunnaki. She hath given him the tablets of destiny, on his breast she laid them, saying, Thy command shall not be without avail, and the word of thy mouth shall be established. Now Kingu, thus exalted, having received the power of Anu, decreed the fate of the gods, her sons, saying, Let the opening of your mouth quench the fire god, who also is exalted in the battle, let him display his might. I sent Anu, but could not withstand her. Nudimud was afraid and turned back, but Marduk hath set out, the director of the gods, your son, to set out against Tiamat his heart hath prompted him. He opened his mouth and spake unto me, saying, If I, your avenger, conquer Tiamat and give you life, appoint an assembly, make my fate preeminent and proclaim it. In Upsukanaku, seat yourselves joyfully together. With my word in place of you, I will decree fate. May whatsoever I do remain unaltered. May the word of my lips never be changed nor made of no avail. Hasten, therefore, and swiftly decree for him the fate which you bestow, that he may go and fight your strong enemy. Lamu and Lahamu heard and cried aloud. All of the Igigi, the elder gods, wailed bitterly, saying, What has been altered, so that they should? We do not understand the deed of Tiamat. Then did they collect and go, the great gods, all of them, who decree fate. They entered in before Ansar. They filled Lacuna. They kissed one another in the assembly, Lacuna. They made ready for the feast, and at the banquet they sat. They ate bread and mixed sesame wine. The sweet drink, the mead, confused their Lacuna. They were drunk with drinking. Their bodies were filled. They were wholly at their ease. Their spirit was exalted. Then, for Marduk, their avenger, did they decree the fate. The fourth tablet. They prepared for him a lordly chamber. Before his fathers, as prince, he took their place. Thou art chiefest amongst the great gods. Thy fate is unequalled. Thy word is Anu. O Marduk, thou art chiefest amongst the great gods. Thy fate is unequalled. Thy word is Anu. Henceforth, not without avail, shall be thy command. In thy power shall it be to exalt and abase. Established shall be the word of thy mouth. Irresistible shall be thy command. None among the gods shall transgress thy boundary. Abundance, 
the desire of the shrine of the gods should be established in thy sanctuary, even though they lack offerings. O Marduk, thou art our avenger. We give thee sovereignty over the whole world. Sit thou down in might, be exalted in thy command. Thy weapon shall never lose its power, it shall crush thy foe. O Lord, spare the life of him that putteth his trust in thee. But as for the God who began the rebellion, pour out his life. Then set they in their midst a garment, and unto Marduk, their firstborn, they spake, May thy fate, O Lord, be supreme among the gods, to destroy and to create. Speak thou the word, and thy command shall be fulfilled. Command now, and let the garment vanish, and speak the word again, and let the garment reappear. Then he spake with his mouth, and the garment vanished. Again he commanded it, and the garment reappeared. When the gods his fathers beheld the fulfilment of his word, they rejoiced and they did homage to him, saying, Marduk is king. They bestowed upon him the scepter, and the throne, and the ring. They give him an invincible weaponry, which overwhelmeth the foe. Go and cut off the life of Tiamat, and let the wind carry her blood into secret places. After the gods his fathers had decreed for the Lord his fate, they caused him to set out on a path of prosperity and success. He made ready the bow, he chose his weapon, he slung a spear upon him and fastened it, he raised the club, in his right hand he grasped it, the bow and the quiver he hung at his side. He set the lightning in front of him, with burning flame he filled his body. He made a net to enclose the inward parts of Tiamat. The four winds he stationed so that nothing of her might escape. The south wind and the north wind and the east wind and the west wind he brought near to the net, the gift of his father Anu. He created the evil wind and the tempest and the hurricane and the fourfold wind and the sevenfold wind and the wind which has no equal he sent forth the winds which he had created, the seven of them, to disturb the inward parts of Tiamat, and they followed after him. Then the Lord raised the thunderbolt, his mighty weapon. He mounted the chariot, the storm unequalled for terror. He harnessed and yoked it to four horses, destructive, ferocious, overwhelming, and swift of pace. Lacuna. Were their teeth, they were flecked with foam. They were skilled in Lacuna. They had been trained to trample underfoot. Lacuna, mighty in battle, left and right, Lacuna. His garment was Lacuna. He was clothed with terror. With overpowering brightness his head was crowned. Then he set out, he took his way, and towards the raging Tiamat he set his face. On his lips he held Lacuna. He grasped in his hand, and they beheld him, the gods beheld him. The gods his fathers beheld him, the gods beheld him, and the Lord drew nigh, he gazed upon the inward parts of Tiamat, he perceived the muttering of Kingu, her spouse, as Marduk gazed, Kingu was troubled in his gait, his will was destroyed and his motion ceased, and the gods his helpers, who marched by his side, beheld their leaders, Lacuna, and their sight was troubled. But Tiamat, Lacuna, she turned not her neck, with lips that failed not, she uttered rebellious words. Lacuna, thy coming as lord of the gods, 
from their places they have gathered, in thy place are they. Then the Lord raised the thunderbolt, his mighty weapon, and against Tiamat who was raging. Thus he sent the word, Thou art become great, thou hast exalted thyself on high, and thy heart hath prompted thee to call to battle. Lacuna, their fathers, Lacuna, there thou hatest, Lacuna. Thou hast exalted Kingdu to be thy spouse. Thou hast Lacuna, him, that, even as Anu, he should issue decrees. Thou hast followed after evil, and against the gods my fathers thou hast contrived thy wicked plan. Let then thy host be equipped. Let thy weapons be girded on. Stand, I and thou, let us join battle. When Tiamat heard these words, she was like one possessed. She lost her reason. Tiamat uttered wild, piercing cries. She trembled and shook to her very foundations. She recited an incantation. She pronounced her spell. And the gods of the battle cried out for their weapons. Then advanced Tiamat and Marduk, the counsellor of the gods. To the fight they came on. To the battle they drew nigh. The Lord spread out his net and caught her. And the evil wind that was behind him he let loose in her face. As Tiamat opened her mouth to its full extent, he drove in the evil wind. While as yet she had not shut her lips, the terrible winds filled her belly, and her courage was taken from her, and her mouth she opened wide. He seized the spear and burst her belly. He severed her inward parts. He pierced her heart. He overcame her and cut off her life. He cast down her body and stood upon it. When he had slain Tiamat, the leader, her might was broken, her host was scattered, and the gods her helpers who marched by her side trembled and were afraid, and turned back. They took to flight to save their lives, but they were surrounded so that they could not escape. He took them captive and he broke their weapons. In the net they were caught, and in the snare they sat down. They, Lacuna, of the world they filled with cries of grief. They received punishment from him. They were held in bondage, and on the eleven creatures which she had filled with the power of striking terror, upon the troops of devils who marched at her lacuna, he brought affliction, their strength he lacuna, them and their opposition he trampled under his feet. Moreover, Kingu, who had been exalted over them, he conquered, and with the god Dug-gar he counted him. He took from him the tablets of destiny that were not rightly his, he sealed them with a seal, and in his own breast he laid them. Now after the hero Marduk had conquered, and cast down his enemies, and had made the arrogant foe even, and had fully established Ansar's triumph over the enemy, and had attained the purpose of Nudimud, over the captive gods, he strengthened his Durance, and into Tiamat, whom he had conquered, he returned. And the Lord stood upon Tiamat's hinder parts, and with his merciless club, he smashed her skull, he cut through the channels of her blood, and he made the north wind bear it away into secret places. His fathers beheld, and they rejoiced and were glad. Presents and gifts they brought unto him. Then the Lord rested, gazing upon her dead body, while he divided the flesh of the lacuna, and devised a cunning plan. He split her up like a flat fish into two halves. One half of her he established as a covering for heaven. He fixed a bolt, he stationed a watchman, and bade them not to let her waters come forth. 
he passed through the heavens, he surveyed the regions thereof, and over against the deep he set the dwelling of Nadimud, and the Lord measured the structure of the deep, and he founded Esarah, a mansion like unto it. The mansion Esarah, which he created as heaven, he caused Anu, Bel, and Ea in their districts to inhabit. The Fifth Tablet Marduk made the stations for the great gods, the stars their images, as the stars of the zodiac he fixed. He ordained the year and intersections he divided it. For the twelve months he fixed three stars, and after he had Lacuna, the days of the year Lacuna, images. He founded the station of Nibir, the planet Jupiter, to determine their bounds, that none might erg or go astray. He set the station of Bel and Ea along with him. He opened the great gates on both sides. He made strong the bolt on the left and on the right. In the midst thereof he fixed the zenith. The moon god he caused to shine forth, and the night he entrusted to him. He appointed him, a being of the night, to determine the days. Every month without ceasing, with the crown he covered him, saying, At the beginning of the month, when thou shinest upon the land, Thou commandest the horns to determine six days, and on the seventh day to divide the crown. On the fourteenth day thou shalt stand opposite the half Lacuna. When the sun god on the foundation of heaven, Lacuna, thee shalt cause to Lacuna, and thou shalt make his Lacuna, unto the path of the sun god thou shalt cause to draw nigh, and on the Lacuna day thou shalt stand opposite, and the sun god shall Lacuna, to traverse her way, Lacuna. Thou shalt cause to draw nigh, and thou shalt judge the right, Lacuna, to destroy Lacuna. Nearly fifty lines here are lost. The gods, his fathers, beheld the net which he had made. They beheld the bow and how its work was accomplished. They praised the work which he had done. Then Anu raised the Lacuna in the assembly of the gods. He kissed the bow saying, It is. And thus he named the names of the bow, saying, Longwood shall be the name, and the second name shall be Lacuna, and its third name shall be Bowstar, and in heaven shall it Lacuna. He then fixed a station for it, Lacuna. Now after the fate of Lacuna, he set a throne, Lacuna, in heaven. The remainder of this tablet is missing. The Sixth Tablet when Marduk heard the word of the gods, his heart prompted him, and he devised a cunning plan. He opened his mouth, and unto ear he spake. That which he had conceived in his heart, he imparted unto him. My blood will I take, and bone will I fashion. I will make man, that man may lacuna. I will create man who shall inhabit the earth, that the service of the gods may be established, that their shrines may be built. But I will alter the ways of the gods, and I will change their paths. Together they shall be oppressed, and unto evil they shall... Lacuna. And Ea answered him, and spake the word, Lacuna, the Lacuna. Of the gods I have changed, Lacuna. And one, Lacuna, shall be destroyed, and men will I, Lacuna. And the gods, Lacuna, and they. The rest of this text is wanting, with the exception of the last few lines of the tablet, which read as follows. They rejoiced. In Upsu Kenaku they set their dwelling. Of the heroic son, their avenger, they cried, We whom he succoured. 
They seated themselves, and in the assembly they named him. They cried aloud, they exalted him. The seventh tablet. O Marduk, bestower of planting, founder of sowing, creator of grains and plants, who caused the green herb to spring up. O Marduk, who is revered in the house of counsel, who is abundant in counsel. The gods paid homage, fear took upon them. O Marduk, the mighty one, the light of the father who begat him, who directeth the decrees of Anu, Bel, and Ea. He was their patron, be ordained their lacuna. He whose provision is abundance, goeth forth lacuna. Marduk is he who created them anew. Should their wants be pure, then they are satisfied. Should he make an incantation, then the gods are appeased. Should they attack him in anger, he withstandeth their onslaught. Let him therefore be exalted, and in the assembly of the gods let him lacuna. None among the gods can rival him. Marduk is Zi-Ukina, the life of the host of the gods, who established for the gods the bright heavens. He set them on their way, and adorned their path. Never shall his lacuna deeds be forgotten among men. Marduk, Azi-Azag, thirdly they named the bringer of purification, the god of the favouring breeze, the lord of hearing and mercy, the creator of fullness and abundance, the founder of plenteousness, who increaseth all that is small. In sore distress we have felt this favouring breeze. Let them say, let them pay reverence, let them bow in humility before him. Marduk, as Agar Azag, may mankind fourthly magnify. The Lord of the pure incantation, the quickener of the dead, who had mercy upon the captive gods, who removed the yoke from upon the gods his enemies, for their forgiveness did he create mankind, the merciful one, with whom it is to bestow life. May his deeds endure, may they never be forgotten, in the mouth of mankind whom his hands have made. Marduk as Mu Azag, fifthly, his pure incantation, may their mouths proclaim, who through his pure incantation hath destroyed all the evil ones. Marduk, who knoweth the heart of the gods, who seeth through the innermost part, the evildoer he hath not caused to go forth with him, the founder of the assembly of the gods, who, lacuna, their heart, subduer of the disobedient, lacuna, director of righteousness, lacuna, who rebellion and lacuna, Marduk Azizi, -zi, the Lacuna, who put an end to anger, who Lacuna. Marduk Asurkur, thirdly, the destroyer of the foe, who puts their plans into confusion, who destroyed all the wicked, Lacuna, and led them, Lacuna. There is a gap here of sixty lines, but somewhere among the lost lines belong the following fragments, who Lacuna. He named the four quarters of the world, mankind he created, and upon him understanding Lacuna, the mighty one, Lacuna, Agil, Lacuna, the creator of the earth, Lacuna, Zulu Mumu, Lacuna, the giver of counsel and whatsoever, Lacuna, Mumu, the creator of Lacuna, Melil, the heavens, Hufor, Lacuna, Gizkol, Let, Lacuna, who brought the gods to naught, Lacuna, the chief of all the lords, Lacuna, supreme is his might. 
Legal de Ramar, the king of the band of the gods, the lord of rulers, who is exalted in royal habitation, who among the gods is gloriously supreme, Adu Nuna, the counsellor of Ea, who created the gods his fathers, unto the path whose majesty no god can ever attain, Lacuna, in Dul Azarg made it be known, Lacuna, pure as his dwelling, Lacuna, of those without understanding is Lugal Dul Azaga, Lacuna, supreme is his might, Lacuna, there in the midst of Tiamat, Lacuna, of the battle. Here follows the better preserved ending. The star which shineth in the heavens, may he hold the beginning and the future, may they pay homage to him, saying, He who forced his way through the midst of Tiamat without resting, let his name be Nibiru, the Caesar of the midst. For the stars of heaven he upheld the paths, he shepherded all the gods like sheep, he conquered Tiamat, he troubled and ended her life. In the future of mankind, when the days grow old, may this be heard without ceasing, may it hold sway for ever. Since he created the realm of heaven, and fashioned the firm earth, the Lord of the world, the Father Bell, hath called his name. This title, which all the spirits of heaven proclaimed, did Ea hear, and his spirit has rejoiced. And he said, He whose name his fathers have made glorious, shall be even as I, his name shall be Ea. The binding of all my decrees shall he control, all my commands shall he make known. By the name of fifty did the great gods proclaim his fifty names, they made his path preeminent. Epilogue Let the names of Marduk be held in remembrances, and let the first man proclaim them. Let the wise and the understanding consider them together. Let the father repeat them and teach them to his son. Let them be in the ears of the pastor and of the shepherd. Let the man rejoice in Marduk, the lord of the gods, that he may cause his land to be fruitful, that he himself may have prosperity. His word standeth fast, his command unaltered. The utterance of his mouth hath no god ever annulled. He gazed in his anger, he turned not his neck. When he is wroth, no god can withstand his indignation. Wide is his heart, broad is his compassion. The sinner and the evildoer in his presence, they received instruction, they spake before him, Lacuna, unto Lacuna. Of Marduk may the gods, Lacuna. May they, his name, Lacuna. They took and... End of the creation epic. There is a second version of the fight with Tiamat. Note, strictly speaking, the text is not a creation legend, although it gives a variant form of the principal incident in the history of the creation according to the Enumera Lish. Here the fight with the dragon did not precede the creation of the world, but took place after men had been created and cities had been built. The city sighed, men, lacuna. Men uttered lamentation, they, lacuna. For their lamentation there was none to help, for their grief there was none to take them by the hand. Who was the dragon? Tiamat was the dragon. Bell in heaven hath formed Lacuna. Fifty caspu in his length, one caspu in his height. Six cubits is his mouth, twelve cubits is his Lacuna. Twelve cubits is the circuit of his ears, Lacuna. For the space of sixty cubits, Lacuna, he a bird. 
In water nine cubits deep he draggeth Lacuna. He raised his tail on high, Lacuna. All the gods of heaven, Lacuna. In the heaven the gods bowed themselves down before the moon god, Lacuna. The border of the moon god's robe they hastily grasped. Who will go and slay the dragon? And deliver the broad land from Lacuna. And become king over Lacuna. Go, Tishu, slay the dragon. And deliver the broad land from Lacuna. And become king over Lacuna. Thou hast sent me, O Lord, the raging creatures of the river. But I know not, Lacuna, of the dragon. The rest of the obverse and upper parts of the reverse of the tablets are wanting. The reverse. And opened his mouth and spake unto the god, Stir up cloud and storm and tempest. The seal of thy life shalt thou set before thy face. Thou shalt grasp it, and thou shalt slay the dragon. He stirred up cloud and storm and tempest. He set the seal of his life before his face. He grasped it and slew the dragon. For three years and three months, one day and one night, the blood of the dragon flowed.